Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. Hymns are in many ways the oral history of our faith. Sometimes it's the timeless music of our predecessors that's just what our soul needs. In this new series, we'll delve into the history to take some of those classic, overlooked, and left-behind hymns and explore their meaning. So come along and join in as we start this brand new series, How Sweet This Sound. Once again, let me say welcome to our guests in particular who are here today. Um, I know this is a very special day in the lives of many of our families, and for those who have historically been a part of this congregation and are coming today, I just want to thank you for being here, being a part of our Memorial Sunday. Now, I will say, and I think I've said this before, Memorial Sunday is sort of a unique tradition in our county. If you grew up in this county, it's something you're accustomed to. You're accustomed to traveling around to different churches all the month of May. Some of them hit the first week or so of June. Um, But this is not the norm at large, right? This is the first time in my life that I have ever encountered Memorial Sunday. And so I remember first year I got appointed here, 2017, then 2018 when it rolled around, what well, the world is Memorial Sunday? That, they're like, it comes on Mother's Day. I'm like, no, that's Mother's Day. Memorial Sunday's the end, right? Memorial Sunday's the last Sunday of, no, 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 that's, that's a different memorial all day. Well, I'm like, we should change the name because that doesn't make any sense at all. It's Memorial Sunday, Memorial Weekend, like I can't keep anything straight. But this is extremely unique. And I know it's, you know, I know it's not in every single church in Rutherford County or our area, but a lot of them have it. And you know this, you've traveled around a lot. And it's one of those spaces, and this is the way I kind of pinned it out. It's a Sunday where we remember what we've lost, in the pre- and in the presence of Christ, we rejoice in what yet will be. And that's important. In this moment, we, we want to both remember the things that we have lost, but as we think about Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection, and as we gather as friends and family in church, we remember and we rejoice in what will be in the future. And we, we acknowledge, and that this is always the painful part, as I said a few minutes ago, we acknowledge the painful part of that reality that we have to remember that there was, but now there is no more. And I know that some of you in this room, and I'm, you know, we've tried to be as honest as we can on days like this, some of you are undergoing one of the most significant trials in your life as you have encountered loss this past year. You feel the weight of it every day. And though some of us you know, may not call as often at times, you never forget the loss that is there. It's this piece of your life that you wake up with every single day. And so I know that that is something that rests inside of you. And I also know that not everyone in this room feels that. But there is also a hidden nature of loss and grief that is in this room, where you might be sitting two rows in front of someone who is facing one of the most difficult battles of their life, and they just got a big old smile on their face, trying to face it every single day. You might be right beside someone, and and so even though their picture didn't go up on the screen this morning, they're still facing this significant battle. And and I want to focus on this this morning for a very specific reason. Because I think the song that we just sang, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, is one, if we start to understand the story behind it, it will transform the way that we face every single trial in our life. Now, for those of you who are here, maybe for the first time, I'm actually in the second part of this series called How Sweet the Sound, where I take a single hymn of the church every single week, and I talk to us about its sort of story, the life that was lived behind it, because I'm operating off of a single assumption. There's some life that lived 
that made those lyrics reality. Now, we just sing them as if it's just a part of our normal everyday routine. In fact, many of you, you didn't need to look at the screen to read the lyrics to that song. You just knew that song. Some of our choir members had their, had their hymnals open, but they're like this the whole time because you know the song. Like, you just embody it. You know it. You've recited it over and over again. But the people who wrote this, the individual who wrote this, Joseph Shriven, he knew this song. He didn't just memorize this song. He lived into the reality of this song. Now, Joseph, he was, you know, last week we talked about an individual who lived in the 1700s. Joseph lived in the 1800s. And when he first wrote this song, it wasn't actually a song at all. It was a poem that he wrote. And he didn't call it What a Friend We Have in Jesus. He, he called it Unceasing Prayer. Pray Without Ceasing is what he called it originally. And when he wrote it, he wrote it for his mother. Joseph was an Irishman, but Joseph didn't live in Ireland. Joseph wandered all the way over to Canada and had settled down there and started living a life of poverty, essentially, and voluntary poverty. And so he couldn't make it home when his mother was old and dying. He instead wrote a poem and was able to get it to her so that in the midst of her pain and suffering, he was able to write her something that might bring her some relief. And at one point in time, a friend actually found the poem. This was years later after the poem had been set to music and said, did you write this? Was this you? And Joseph responded simply and humbly as he could. He said, the Lord and I did it between us. This was the Lord and I's poem that we wrote, and I wrote it for my mother, but his poor mother is sick at home, and Joseph, the only thing he can offer to her is this song, and in it, he speaks to his mother about the ultimate power of prayer in her life about how prayer can change everything that she's, that she's engaging with in, in a really like kind of baseline way. I know prayer is a word we use and are comfortable with in church. This is just about communication. That's all it is. Hey, look, you can communicate with God in a real, transformative way. Joseph would say even in the deepest, darkest spaces of your life, in the places of most hurt, you can have that sort of communication with God. And of course, we call this prayer. That's how we sort of spell it out. But, but it, it is nothing more than just a deep relationship with God. And I mean, you can just hear this from the beginning. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. What is the next line? Everything to the Lord in prayer. That's exactly right. And Shriven's mother, she needed this. She'd been burdened down for many years without her son. Her son had left the island years ago, landed in Canada, and she was without him. And she had a lot of burdens in being separated. And now she's fallen ill and she's facing her own mortality. And that's all resting on her shoulders alone. And in the middle of that grief, she can turn back to God in prayer. She can turn back to a friend who is with her. It kind of reminds me of Paul. We, we preached, or I preached on the book of Philippians a while back, but some of you will remember this. At the very end of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, Paul has this verse. He says, and, and I love the way uh, he's just so blunt about this. He says, don't worry about anything in your life. Don't do it. Don't worry about a single thing. Remember, he's writing from prison. He's writing where they're threatening his life. Don't worry about anything in life. Instead, what I want you to do, pray about everything. And we need to take everything in, to God in prayer. What a privilege it is, as Shriven would say, to carry everything to God in prayer. And this is where I want us to rest for just a short while today. I want to rest in the middle of this spiritual discipline because I think there's a lot of confusion about what prayer is and what prayer ain't. Right? There's a lot of us that sort of approach prayer in our life as if it's just too complex or maybe it's too boring or maybe it's ineffective. It doesn't work. 
right? And we think about prayer in these ways over and over again, like, you know, it's too complex. There's all those these and thous. I remember as a kid, I went to a Baptist church one Sunday, and my cousin and I counted the amount of times the deacon said Lord in his prayer. I think we got it like 50-something times in the middle of that prayer, right? It was a Lord before a sentence and after a sentence and before another sentence and after. Like, it was just over and over again. It's just too complex, right? To pray in that way is sort of, it's, it's outrageous, it's audacious. That why would I ever want to do that? It's just too complex to offer my prayers. And then other times it's too boring, right? It's just, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Like, there's these moments I remember growing up, and I've shared some of these with you, where my, my grandmother would be praying, and I would be right beside her, and I would just fall asleep. And of course, she would fall asleep eventually in the middle of her prayer. That's another story altogether. But it's just so boring, right? It puts us to sleep. In fact, if you ever have a group of teenagers over at your house and you want them to go to sleep at night, just start reading some of the prayers out of Scripture. It, sh- it will knock them out. I get, it's done, right? And we feel this way about our own prayer life. It's just boring. Or there are moments that are difficult in life, maybe some of you have faced these, where you've had earnest prayers that God would answer. God didn't answer in the way that you thought God should answer. And in that context right there, you've sort of backed off on your prayer life because it it's not effectual, right? It doesn't, doesn't change anything. It didn't change my pain. It didn't change my circumstance. It didn't change anything about my life. And so I've just backed off. So sometimes it's complex. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes it just doesn't work. But here's the problem with this, and particularly the last one. The last one bothers me probably more than any of the others bother me. And it bothers me because what it says to us is that my prayer life is more about transaction than relationship. That's what it says. It says that what I'm hoping for is a transaction between me and God. I'm hoping for an exchange between me and God, that God will do something for me. But if you hear nothing else from me today, I want you to hear this one thing, that prayer is not transactional. It's not a transaction to be completed in your life. Prayer is a connection to be created in your life. That's what prayer is. It's not some exchange between you and God that just needs to be completed. And if I give him enough of my prayer life, if I wake up and pray every 20 minutes, I'm going to receive something and that'll be great because it doesn't work that way. Right? It's a formation of relationship. It's grounded in the context of relationship. I mean, think about this in terms of, uh, of your friends, your best friends. The best relationships you have in life, you don't approach them and say, oh my gosh, they're so complex, and every time I'm around that person, it's just so boring. It's ridiculous that I have to be around them, and they never give me enough. Right? No, that's not how relationships work in our lives. What you will say instead is this, I love being around them because every time I'm around them, it's just so easy. Have you ever said that? It's just so easy to be around this person. I can just sort of speak my mind all the time so freely. It's not encumbered by how I should act or how I shouldn't act. Like, I just, it's just easy to be with them. And it doesn't ever get boring. We always have lots of things that we can do together, and there are always new adventures to be in being with each other. And never, you know, most of the time, best friends aren't like, you know, waiting for some transaction to take place. They're fighting over who will be able to invest in the other, right? You go out to, to eat with a best friend, you fight over the bill. No, I'm taking it this time. No, you took it last time. I'll take it this time. I don't, you know, we fight back and forth about how we will engage the relationship. And this is what God wants for us. He doesn't want prayer to be complicated. He doesn't want it to be boring or transactional and exchange. It's relational. That's what it is. That's the power of prayer, and that's why it can always be easy. It can always be exciting, and so many of us have misunderstood this because we've erred on the side of transaction, and what we need to do today is sort of move in this new direction where we understand and embrace the reality of God who wants to have a deep, meaningful relationship with us that is actually activated in prayer. And this is where this friendship reality becomes so important. 
Because it's in the essence of discovering that God is our friend that we start to discover how God wants to have that sort of prayer life with us, that relational connection with us. And Jesus, Jesus, in fact, wanted to communicate this to his disciples. There's this section in John's gospel. We usually call it the farewell teachings or the farewell monologues or something like that. But it takes place in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And it's right there on the last night in which Jesus was with his disciples, the last supper, those types of things. And in this particular place, John 13, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. That's John 13. John 17, Jesus gets down and prays for the disciples, for the world, for all of us. That's what he does. But in the middle, there's these farewell speeches. And right in the middle of that, in John chapter 15, there's this space where he starts to redefine how you and I understand God, how you and I relate with God in this place. And and this is where it comes to us, John chapter 15, verse 12. Listen to what he says. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, he's already said this to them in John chapter 13. He said, this is how people will know you, that you love one another. And he's just sort of repeating what he said back there at the beginning. But then he introduces a new image of God. And I want you to hear this very carefully. Verses 13 and 14. No one has greater love than this. This right here, this is the epicenter of love. This is the greatest form of love that you can ever have to lay down your life on behalf of one's friends. And you, he says to them, you're not just my subjects. I'm not just your teacher, your master. You're my friends, he says to the disciples. You're my friends if you do what I command, if you continue to love one another. That's, that's the only thing you need to worry about. If you do what I command and love one another in this way, you are my friends. And I, I know it's not always easy for us to think of Jesus in those terms, particularly for the disciples for just a minute. It wasn't, wasn't all that easy for them to think of Jesus in those terms because, after all, he is their master. After all, he is their teacher. He is all of these things, but he's their friend, He's the one who sticks closer to them than a brother. And so he goes on and he says, I don't call you servants. You think that, you assume that, but I don't call you that. I don't call you servants any longer because the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. Jesus calls them the most intimate of friends. And I want you to think about this for just a minute, the weight of this for just a moment. The the lion of the tribe of Judah, the alpha and the omega, the creator of all things, the word incarnate who has come and dwelt among us is standing in front of them. And he says, I don't want you to think about me in any of those terms. I want you to think about me as your friend. That's what I am. I'm your friend who stands right beside you. And Jesus not only says this is who you are, but he models this, right? He models this just a few chapters before when he gets down and he washes the disciples' feet. But in the world, this is what people knew him as. He was the friend of sinners. That's who Jesus was. You remember him talking about this. This is Jesus. He's always the friend with those who are far from God. This is the friend that we all can run to in the, li- in the midst of life's most difficult moments. We have this friend. And as a friend, Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, you don't choose me, but I chose you. I'm not waiting for you to establish the relationship with me. I want to choose you. I want to pursue you. I want to be there for you. And, and in pursuing you, he goes on, he says, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I want to be with you. I've chosen you. I've chosen to be with you. And I've not only chosen to connect and commit myself to you, but I want our relationship to go so deep that you get to start participating in the work that I am doing in the world. 
Right? You get to be a partner with me. This is the nature of the friendship, that we get to share in what God is doing in the world. That's the mutuality that we see in God's invitation to us. And I know it doesn't always seem to work out in this beautiful way, because for all of us who are here, for all of us who are watching online, you know not every day is bright and brilliant and beautiful and all those things. There's some days that are terrible. There's not days that are just overflowing with fruit, and we get to experience all the wonderful things that God is doing. But that's okay, because here's the reality. You aren't in service to God, eager to produce or eager to receive. You're not trying to have some sort of transaction with God. You're just building a relationship with God. And so if every day doesn't produce the same good results, if every day doesn't look bright and sunny, that's all right. It's not about the transaction. It's about the depth of relationship, right? Circumstances, outcomes, all of those things, they automatically change if you have a relationship because you're working in tandem with one another through those storms. You're working with God in the midst of that. And that's exactly the type of relationship that Joseph Shriven had experienced with God in his own life. Shriven had experienced that depth of relationship that could rise above any circumstances that would come to that way. And that's what he wanted to communicate to his mother when he wrote this poem and he sent it to her. Now, if you were here last week, you remember me talking a little bit about Newton, who his nickname was the Great Blasphemer. Right? He was a terrible human being. In many ways, he was a terrible human being. Joseph Shriven was not like Newton. He, you know, if, if uh, the Great Blasphemer was the nickname for Newton, Joseph Shriven's nickname would be like the Good Samaritan. Because he had dedicated his life in service to God. In fact, one story is told of a wealthy businessman who came into town. And he looked across the road and he said, you know what, that looks like a sober man. Which is interesting in terms of like discovering who you want to be your handyman. It's like, the bar is, he's sober. Like, if we can get him, you know, then we can get some work done. That's what he was looking at. He goes, that looks like a, th- a, a sober man. I think I'll hire him. And as he was saying this, another person right next to him who's from the village goes, oh, no, 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 no. That's Joseph Shriven. He's like, wait, sober, right? I think that works well. And he's like, no, you don't understand. He goes, this is Joseph Shriven. He wouldn't cut wood for you because you can afford him. He doesn't cut wood for anybody who can afford him. He only cuts wood and does projects for people who can't afford him. This is how he lived his life, in service to others who would not be able to repay him. He had that deep connection with God, deep connection in prayer that manifested in his practice And even though his life was not great, his prayer and his practice remained strong. I mean, if we could pause for just a minute, if you walk up in Canada and hear an Irish accent, one of the first questions that you ask is, how in God's name did you get here? How did you land in Canada, of all places, if you grew up in Ireland? And the story is actually long and drawn out and sad, but I'll surmise it as best I can pretty briefly. Early in his 20s, Shriven had fallen in love with his childhood sweetheart. And they had developed a deep and lasting relationship. And early in his 20s, he had decided to marry her. And they became engaged, and they were pursuing that day of their marriage. And the day before their marriage, they would go to greet one another. And they were both on horseback, riding towards one another. And the story goes that as Joseph was on one side of the bridge, and she was on the other side of the bridge, her horse bucked. It threw her off into the river where she hit her head, turned around, and drowned in the river. And before he could get to her, she was already gone. And right there in his early 20s, he experiences the loss of this deep and lasting love in his life that sent him in a tailspin. 
And he leaves Ireland in that moment, and he just starts traveling aimlessly all over the world, and he finally lands in Canada. And he falls in love with the people there, and he develops this deep and lasting relationship with God there and the community of the, uh, of the saints who were gathered there in Canada. And he starts to build a life for himself. And before you know it, Joseph once again falls in love. And this time he falls in love with, uh, with a lady by the name of Eliza. And she's Canadian, so she's got all the A's and whatever. Like, but she's super polite, as you would imagine she would be. Um, and he loves her once more. And he opens her heart up to loving once again. And he pursues her for marriage. And weeks before they are ma- to marry, she gets sick with the flu, which turns into pneumonia, and she dies. And once again, Joseph is feeling the full weight of this grief resting on his life, not understanding why he cannot connect in this way. Two times, not once, two times he has to face the weight of losing the love of his life in this way. But he doesn't stop praying And he doesn't stop practicing because he's got a friend who won't leave him. He's got a friend who's always there. He's got a friend who's always with him. And I wish, you know, sometimes I I read a lot of stories about Joseph and sometimes the stories stop right there. But that's actually not the end of Joseph's story. Joseph's story is actually quite tragic in the end. He doesn't stop praying. He doesn't stop practicing. But the burden of grief in his life continues to rest with him. For those of you who've walked this journey of grief, you know this. Grief doesn't ever leave us. It just sort of morphs in our lives as we go throughout life. And that was the way it was with Joseph. It sort of shifted. It changed as he walked the journey. And as he did, even though it changed, he never stopped praying. He never stopped practicing. He never stopped serving. Because he had a friend who wouldn't leave him. He had a friend who was always there for him. He had a friend who was everywhere. And it was a friend who was with him even when he lost his childhood sweetheart. It was a friend who was with him when he would lose the love of his life a second time. It was a friend who traveled with him when he traveled the world and went across the ocean and landed in Canada. It was a friend who was with him when he received the news of his mother dying. It was a friend who was with him. And even in the final days of his life in August of 1886, just a month away from his 67th birthday. Jesus was this friend who was close to Joseph in one of the deepest depressions of his life. And Joseph wasn't alone in this depression. He had friends who came around him. He had friends who were with him in the midst of this, who would sit by his bed. In fact, they would watch with him at night because they were so scared for his life. But one evening, a friend left the room and went to bed in the other room. And the next morning, to his surprise, Joseph was gone. He didn't know where. He walked about the city, and eventually he found Joseph in a river, drowned. Now, it's not really sure whether it was an accident or it was actual suicide. What we do know is that Joseph was in one of the darkest moments of his life. He never stopped praying, and he never stopped practicing, even there. Now, I know, I know that's, that's a heavy reality, and that could be triggering for many of you, and I just want to acknowledge that and throw that out there. But I think it's important to actually hear Joseph's life in full. Because Joseph's life is not one that was free of hardship and pain. And yet he could still offer these words 
He could still say, we've got this friend in Jesus. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And I I just want you to hear the power of those lyrics right there, knowing the story of the life that was lived behind those lyrics. And I sort of, you know, I I don't know if we sang the last stanza or not earlier. Uh, I was sort of preparing for this, but, but the last stanza of that song, I just sort of imagine it going over and over again in his mind as he lay there the night before his death. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Joseph Joseph knew that. Joseph knew that this friend knew his weaknesses and he wasn't afraid to share them with him. He knew that this friend knew all of those things. He knows them all. He empathizes with all of them. In fact, the author of Hebrews said it this way. He says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with all of our weaknesses. We have one who knows all our weaknesses, who stands with us in all our weaknesses. And life, life is packed out with all the chaos and the storms and the sorrows and all of those things. And it doesn't change for us. It doesn't grow dim. It, it constantly is this way. There's chaos that sort of crashes in on us like waves from time to time. And there's sorrows that that kind of meet us in the lowest valleys of life. But in all of these storms and all of this darkness, there is a strength that we can find that is greater than our own. There's a strength that we find in this friend that we have, this friend who scripture says sticks closer to us than a brother, this friend who provides everything that we ever need. There's this friend in our lives who offers redemption, who offers consolation, who offers peace, who offers comfort, who offers all of those things to us. In the midst of these places, this is the friend who stands with us there. And he doesn't offer you consolation apart from the problems of life. Through prayer, we find his consolation and peace in the middle of it. Because true peace, true peace is not found in the absence of problems. True peace is always going to be found for you in your life in the presence of God. And as we come together and close this morning, as we kind of wrap things up in this service, I want us to come to God in prayer. That's where I want us to find ourselves this morning. You're going to see that at the end of every single one of your rows, there's some prayer cards. I've got a few up here just to kind of hold them up and you can see they look like there should be some pens in your rows some some of them are white some of them are brown these brown ones are praying without ceasing so get ready you just got to go non-stop with that but here's what i want you to do i want you to find them if there's not enough on your rows uh tim's got some extra copies he can give you some if you need a pen he can give you one just raise your hand i want us to be able to offer our prayers before god and before one another in a real and lasting way and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You are, you're going to share these cards with somebody else in the room and play a little game of you know, exchange here in a minute. So you can put whatever you want. Just know it's going to be shared with somebody. But I do want you to put just your first name. And I just want you to put one line of prayer. We're going to take everything to God in prayer this morning. It can be whatever you want. It could be, you know, prayer for my marriage, prayer for my, my family, prayer for grief, prayer for, you know, a good job, prayer, prayer for whatever you want to put down there. But just take a moment and put your name, and, and then we're going to exchange these out as this final song is played. Because I, I firmly believe that things start to change in our lives when we kind of approach God in prayer. It doesn't always change the circumstances. In fact, most of the time, It doesn't change the circumstances. But what I've discovered about prayer is that it always changes you. 
and how you live into those circumstances. And this morning, I want you to write that prayer request down. And in just a few minutes, when the, when the praise team sings this final song, I just want you to stand. Our ushers are going to serve us, um, serve us and receive the tithe and offering in this final moment. But after they come through, I want you to step forth and just exchange this with somebody. Exchange right around, however you want to do it. And you can change two or three times, right? Someone hadn't had an exchange, do that. But everybody, I want to walk out today with a way in which you can pray for each other. You can take these burdens to the Lord in prayer. And we can learn how to be changed through prayer this day. Ushers, if you'll come to prepare to serve us. Congregation, if you'll stand with me this morning. Gracious God, I want to thank you for the ways in which we can connect and communicate with you, not just so that you will change something in our lives, but so that we can ultimately be changed by you. God, I think back about my life and all the times where I've asked you to do something or to change something, to heal someone. And I know the answer hasn't always been yes right away or really just, it's never, it's not always been what I wanted. But God, it's not today what we want. I want you to develop a hunger for wanting you today. Within our souls, within our spirits, God, I just, I just ask that you would start to develop this hunger inside of us that we would want you more. That we would want to be in connection and communion with you more, God. And so we're going to write down the circumstances of our lives that we, we offer petitions before you today. We're going to hand them to our friends and our family members, and we're going to ask that they to join in in developing this, this sort of prayer relationship with us and for us. But God, ultimately, we want you involved in the situations of our lives. We want you involved in the circumstances that surround us for the things that are going through our minds. We want you. And so God, as we both give in our tithe and offerings, and as we give in these cards to one another, we ask that we would receive the blessings of your presence in our lives. Come to us in this moment, in this beautiful exchange, and change us forever. In Jesus' name we pray.